everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. Glad to have you here with us as we uh, have a look at what the Proverbs have to say to us about family. Uh, my name's Cameron, talking to you from Launceston in Tasmania. Yeah, g'day. Ken Stanton here. And Luke here. And I'm Lachlan. The lesson this week talks about rest in family and uses as its uh, springboard the story of Joseph, which famously is a story of a functional family in which everyone enjoyed lots of rest. So um, we think that there's possibly not much to say there. And uh... No sibling rivalry, no scheming. Yeah, no, no drama. No, no being sold into slavery and yeah. being forced to work every day of the no, week. No suffering or anguish whatsoever. Um, that being so, we we thought we might turn to Proverbs again because we're having so much fun looking at the Proverbs. And uh, the F- Proverbs does have a lot to say about family. So uh, whether or not we get onto the topic of rest may or may not be, but we are going to take the, the cue from the lesson to look at, at family. And, uh, and Locke, you've got a proverb to kick us off. Yeah, uh, so Proverbs 19 uh, verse 13 is an interesting one here because, and I guess this highlights the issue that unfortunately far too many people have with families, that they're not always a place of rest. Proverbs 19 verse 13 says, A foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are, are a constant dripping. Neither of those things sound very restful to me. I suspect there's a bit of a long pause here because there are people who are uh, feeling a little uncomfortable about the second part of that. (laughs) Well, it's obvious that this was written by a man and I would like to hear what the wife has to say. There's a lunar cartoon which I'm going to have to try and remember, um, but it's the seven wonders of the of the modern world. In fact, there's two lunar cartoons that deserve a, a mention. Um, one of them is the seven wonders of the of the modern world, and it's a man in the house and he's saying, "Darling, I can't find my car keys. I wonder where I left them." And um, she says, "Well, it's a wonder you can find anything at all with the way you look." Look, and that's the second wonder. And then he thinks. I wonder why I'm still with this woman. And she's thinking, I wonder why I haven't left this guy long ago. And then in the next frame, she says, I found your car keys. They were in the yogurt in the fridge. And he says, darling, you're a wonder. (laughs) (laughs) I've left some of them out. (laughs) So it's quite possible. The the other one is a a cartoon entitled... um, when was it that you discovered your husband was a goat? And there's a depiction of, of a man with big goat horns coming out of his head. And, you know, did, did you discover he was a goat um, at your wedding? Or was it when your first child was born? When you found him on top of the roof of the house climbing up or something or eating your pyjamas or something. Um, and, then, and then he says, but don't worry. Um, goats are good natured. It's better to be married to a goat than a fox. <laughs> I think wives could possibly add some balance if they were to to contribute to the problem. I'm, I'm sure they could, and I'm going to preface these comments 
by saying that um, I have no doubt, and I say this with complete sincerity, uh, that uh, when Solomon wrote the Proverbs, and particularly when he wrote Proverbs 31, verses 10 and following, um, he had met my wife and he was describing mm -hmm. her. Um, so that's important for you to understand. Uh, but I, I have a little story about our... So Ken, just in case our listeners are not familiar with the Proverbs, Proverbs 31 is not the passage we just read. No, Proverbs 31 is the passage that talks about the wife of noble character. She's worth far more than rubies. Yeah. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. Um, mm. uh, she's hardworking, mm. provides for the family, uh, manages all the businesses, um, extends charity, is clothed with strength and dignity, uh, and can laugh at the days to come, speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. Uh, her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. And I take the opportunity to do that now. Um, uh, but... <laughs> uh, look, I share this, I hope, with some humour. Um, uh, I want a miniature schnauzer. I, my children, my six children have all left home um, and I feel the need to continue parenting. Um, my wife does not want a miniature schnauzer. Um, she uh, suggests, uh, most unjustifiably, I think, that she will be the one who will be left to toilet train the puppy to uh, uh, pick up the, uh, uh, the droppings outside, uh, to feed it when I'm not around. Um, and she doesn't want something more to parent right at this time. Um, so we were out uh, at a bakery of all places the other day, which had some gifts, and there was a lovely little uh, soft toy miniature schnauzer, almost full size. Uh, not inexpensive, but not the thousands of dollars for a real live one. And I said to Wendy, I need this. Um, and she said, all right, you can have it. It's the only one you're going to get. Um, <laughs> right. and, and so we purchased my miniature schnauzer, whose name is Chumpy. Uh, and oh, Chumpy's living in our house now. One of the things that that Wendy insisted any dog would never do was sleep on the bed. Um, and the other night I came home and Chumpy had made his way into the bed. Um, and indeed, <laughs> no, I, I came home the other I came home the other day, and um, uh, Chumpy had brought my slippers to the door. Can you believe it? Um, All right. <laughs> and I thought this is wonderful. Um, I, I, I can win with this. And I suggested to Wendy that given that Chumpy is now so well trained, he can bring my slippers to the door every night. <laughs> and I thought I had just completely won. And of course, she immediately responded with the fact that, well, if he fails to do that, you're the one who trained him. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> All right. uh, I suggested to one of my colleagues that I can't win, and he responded, never. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Does Wendy listen to this podcast, Ken? <laughs> no, she doesn't. I can tell the story with complete impunity, but she won't mind. <laughs> well, then I, I can offer some suggestions that she won't, she won't um, take up. As the owner of a dog, 
considerably larger than a miniature schnauzer, um, that on moving to Tasmania, the dog hadn't chewed anything, although it chewed everything while it was a pup, but it hadn't chewed anything for 12 months or so, that moved down here, unsettled our dog a little bit. She's a Leonberger, uh, a big dog. So she's she's undersized. She's about 50 kilos, and she's definitely the runt of the litter. She's, she's way undersized for the breed. Um, she de- she decided that what she really needed to sort of calm herself after the the move to a new house was to chew my five hundred dollar pair of hiking boots. <laughs> oh dear! So so can you better make sure that Chumpy doesn't bring a half chewed? <laughs> <laughs> that that would be very traumatic. <laughs> Uh, and can you're right to point out that the author of Proverbs does have more positive things to say uh, in this regard, even the verse after the one that I led with. So verse 13 was, um, a foolish child is a calamity to a father. A quarrelsome wife is as annoying as constant dripping. But then verse 14 goes straight on to say, fathers can give their sons an inheritance of houses and wealth, but the Lord, only the Lord can give an understanding wife. So, yeah, there is a there is right here, isn't there? The the kernel of this idea that there's a real diversity of experience of family and there are some of the best of human experience in in the rest of a supporting family. I was just watching today um a, a couple of epi- events from the Olympics which are which are running as we record this uh, podcast and because of all of the COVID restrictions, obviously far less people have actually travelled to be in the venues as the athletes compete. And the TV, um, Channel 7 in Australia, has done a really great job of getting some some journalists to, to join with the families of some of these athletes here in Australia as they're watching through the screen and getting mm. just that little bit of a family connection. I thought it was really well done and the the added substantially to to the pleasure of watching the already considerable pleasure of watching these athletes perform at the very peak of human mm. abilities so yeah there's something truly powerful and and rich about family uh, and yet yeah there is so so often and i and i say so often because even in the best of families this is not i'm not putting a judgment on some are good families and some are bad families even even good families have bad days mm. And in those bad days, it's far from restful. That's my experience. Mm. Yeah. Well, and that perhaps brings us over to Proverbs 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Ah. <laughs> well, here I have so, to point something out. Cameron and Lachlan. For, for you listeners. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Cameron is my brother. But I will, I will give you my, on solemn oath, my grandmother assures everyone that she ever talks to that Cameron and I never fought. Ever, not even once when we were young. <laughs> so there you go. I beg to differ. <laughs> Luke, it I... wouldn't matter if you. <laughs> it wouldn't matter if you did differ; she would still say it. It wouldn't matter if you could show video evidence; she would be unperturbed I in her. <laughs> saw the two of you together on occasions where she was not present. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's possible we even f- did fight in her presence, but. Um, yeah. <laughs> I guess uh, there's an interesting thought right there, though. Is that what we think is meant here in Proverbs 17? Uh, a brother is born for adversity. Um, are we saying a brother is born in order to create adversity or a brother is born 
for well, the moment of adversity in order to provide support. It, it seems there's I, an ambiguity here. I, I had a look at it like in the KJV version, I think it was, and um, that tends to to lean much more towards the second interpretation, the the one where a, a brother is a good thing. Um, oh, it was not the KJV version. Oh, yeah, it was the NIV version. If you, if you look at it in NIV, they've obviously gone with a, a reading that suggests the second interpretation because it says uh, a brother is born for a time of adversity. Ah. Ah. As in a time when you are experiencing adversity is when it's good to have a brother. Well, I don't know. It could still be adversity that was a time of <laughs> adversity created by the brother. But <laughs> I, I pause to I suppose, say here, I suppose it is still a bit ambiguous. I pause to say here also, I have a, a younger brother, Dean, uh, for whom I have the greatest admiration. And as we, mm. although our life journeys have taken us on different paths, uh, he's an absolutely fascinating one. Um, uh, the older we get, uh, the more alike we become. Uh, and I think that says something <laughs> about the nature of family too. Uh, that, that that common grounding ends up in the end uh, producing a similar outcome. Mm. Yeah, and uh, you know, brothers, you know, uh, uh, famously don't get on all the time, but bring some external threat mm. in. A new a new bully moved in into the playground, or um, yeah. Mm. You, brothers can team up pretty quick. Yes. And I do think, Locke, that we do fight a lot less than at least most of the brothers that I have to mediate between at school. <laughs> um, there's, there's, there's some in particular that uh, are quite difficult. Uh, of course. On, on the sub... Oh, you go, Ken. You go, Luke. I was just yeah. going to say, there's no reason why uh, this verse is not deliberately ambiguous so that it can mean both things. Mm-hmm. Turn. Well, one of the powers, one of the powers of the proverbs is that, uh, and we noticed this in well, probably our second episode here, where we talked about there's some proverbs about the fool, which were consecutive next to each other and they were contradictory. Um, if if something is uh, a complex, nuanced thing like family is, then uh, you can express its nuance very well with very unnuanced statements. That oppose. Yes. That's a good point. The one, the example that we were talking about with fools was don't talk to a fool. Don't answer him back because you'll end up looking just as foolish as he is. And then the next proverb says answer a fool because otherwise he'll go on uncorrected. Yeah. And, um, and so what you've suddenly discovered is that each of those statements is fairly uh, trite maybe or simplistic. Put it together and you've suddenly got a really interesting combined package. And I think that's, I think that's the thing that proverbs does. Uh, is that for every proverb you must sort of go hunting for the equal and opposite proverb to to find to find where the nuance is. Even even this thing we we focused on the on the wives here, and we've just gotten uh, onto brothers. If we look in our first verse, mentioned sons, yes. uh, a foolish son brings ruin to his father. Uh, there's another verse that says the greedy bring ruin to their households. Mm. There's mm. The, there's the father that, bringing that ruin means, to the that, to the sons. Yeah. The fathers bring ruin to the sons. In fact, in this proverb, greedy people bring ruin to their entire households. Yeah. Their, yeah. their sons and their wives and their um, servants and their slaves. Uh, so, so um, yeah, it's certainly a fairly balanced 
perspective if if you read across more than one proverb. Mm. Mm. Which I think is the way the proverbs has to be read. You can't pick verses. This is not a criticism of what we're doing this evening because I don't think we're doing this, but you can't pick verses out and say proverbs says this because more often than not, as you point out, Cam, a chapter later, two verses later, sometimes the very next verse, sometimes the exact same verse, Proverbs will say the opposite thing. It is inherently a, a, a complex uh, set of information that, that, um, that has to be taken to some extent as a whole and, and with an eye to the nuances of it. That's true of Scripture generally. Um, th- there is throughout Scripture uh, a need, if you want to support a particular proposition uh, to silence some other scriptures um, that speak to exactly the opposite point to what you're trying to make. So uh, it's true not just of Proverbs, but of most of scripture. It's very interesting to me the if you look just a little, I was just casting my eye a bit further down Proverbs 17 and you've got um, 21 talking about people being sorrowful if they're the father of a fool and um, and you've got 25, verse 25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Okay, so that that could be seen as being pretty hard on sons who are just not quite living up to something. But, but I'd like to make an observation that's a little bit deeper here. Proverbs, one of its key themes we've already discovered is this contrast between wisdom and foolishness. And it's not as simple as just being clever or dumb. Uh, we, we've already seen that sometimes the person who thinks they are clever, might actually be worse off than the person who acknowledges their foolishness. So there's a little bit of complexity there. But I think one of the things that comes out again and again in Proverbs is the intergenerational depth of some of these issues, some of these ailments. And foolishness can be tritely sort of identified as, you know, bad decision making. But even if you say that, bad decision making has intergenerational consequences and Luke here I am opening a massive big door about about some of the issues that relate to you know global poverty um, and there's there's substantial ways in which these sorts of things become embedded don't they um, and and then it's really really difficult to to identify the optimum ways to escape from embedded and I'm putting it here in air quotes foolishness um, I know you addressed that comment to Luke. Can I, can, can I jump mm. in there and say... Go, go right um, ahead, Kim. Uh, one of the uh, very interesting um, uh, but also heart-rending aspects of the work that I do is that um, I deal with uh, uh, cases in which children are taken into the care of the state. Uh, and I have to decide when mm. that happens. And uh, uh, the, the stories are often well, invariably, uh, just tragedy, which demonstrate uh, that very point. Uh, over and over and over again, um, the child being taken into care is the child of a child who was taken into care. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and and it, it, just, it just goes on and on. The other element of what I do very often, most days, is to deal with um, uh, domestic violence, uh, family violence matters. Uh, and uh, the research now 
uh, indicates very clearly that the impact on the emotional development of a child, even when they will not remember any of the events that occur um, of family violence, is profound uh, and damaging. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why uh, people, governments, um, are so uh, intent on calling out and dealing with uh, and doing what can be done uh, to uh, prevent uh, violence in the home uh, because of the profound effect it has even on very young children uh, and and their ability then to enter into a fully functioning family life um, and yeah. these these are issues that I don't know whether I'm more sensitive to them now because of the work that I do but it, it certainly uh, there's so much intergenerational heartbreak. It's fascinating to hear you say that, Ken. I, I may have even already recounted this anecdote on a much, much, much earlier episode in this podcast. When I was a student at studying at Newcastle University, I was commuting by train one day and I was waiting on the platform of Hamilton Station in Newcastle while switching trains from the Newcastle-Sydney line out to the Hunter line to get to the university. And there was a conversation taking place that just vividly etched in my mind. It was, uh, let me simplify it slightly, it appeared to be a homeless bum, a man looking much older than he was, probably in his late 20s, and a quite professionally dressed, smart-looking young lady. And she was explaining how her marriage had broken down, and, and it was... I don't remember all of the details, but I remember the feeling of, I don't know, almost flippancy. And he asked her whether she had any kids and she seemed to flippantly respond with a, yes, I've got two, they're young, they'll be fine. It doesn't, you know, sort of doesn't matter. And he was really grilling her. He was kind of saying, hey, you know, you can't think like that. It really does matter. It affects kids. And I just, I didn't know anything about either of these people, but I couldn't help feeling, looking at the guy, that it was extremely plausible that he was a child who had who had endured this sort of disruption in his family life and it had potentially launched him on a on a quite a socially unstable sort of journey through life and here he was looking almost the opposite of her and yet being the one in whom i thought was the word of wisdom mm. and and it was just that it was that contrast where the the words that was being spoken seemed to have almost swapped from from the visual perception that someone you know passerby would have made of these two people, and I know I'm I'm judging that woman terribly, and I don't know her story, but the the point I'm making is is yes, it, it etched in my mind because of the feeling of earnestness in this in this young man's sort of speech. He was whether his family had been those sorts of difficulties or not. He was clearly coming from a a, a life perspective that hadn't served him a super good deal. Um, and he was, he was encouraging someone who did seem to have a reasonably good deal to, to recognize that. And this is the sort of thing that we're, that we're exploring, I suppose. Hmm. It's a bit off topic, but I feel like I have to bring it up. I've just realized that Proverbs 
17, verse 22, is a verse that I really should know off the, you know, by memory, because it's, it's my daughter's name. Ah. So it is, of course, the, a, a, a cheerful heart is, is good medicine. And my daughter's Cantonese name is Loksam, which means happy heart. Oh. And it, is the, <laughs> it is the characters used in the Cantonese Bible translation. That's pretty cool. Oh, that, and that's, that's her pretty name. Cool. Mm. That is lovely, Luke. Mm. It's it definitely... <laughs> It was it was Kimmy's idea. Now I've often um, heard of, and I thought it was brilliant. I've often heard of Bible names, and they come out like David or you know Jonathan or yeah. you know those those sort of Micah. You know we get those Bible mm-hmm. names, but I've not been aware that one of those beautiful Bible names is Cheerful Heart. Um, yep, <laughs> and yeah. I like that a lot. Hmm. <laughs> There's some amazing images here. And I know we've talked in previous episodes that um, we should devote some time just to digging into some really fun metaphors. But in Proverbs 17, better to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool bent on folly. (laughs) And if we're going to talk about dripping taps, there's something or or a constant dripping, which was the... um, in verse 14, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. That's worse than a constant dripping. That's we, <laughs> we, we were recently on holiday and at the Arthur River on the West Coast where there's you have beaches and rivers flowing down through the sand and quicksand if the conditions are bad, so you have to be careful for that. But, but one of the great things that we always did growing up was to build a dam. And you build it up higher and higher and higher and you try and keep up with the water flowing into it and eventually it gets impossible and the weight of water behind the dam washes it away in a great collapse, which is hugely entertaining for young children. Yeah. Yeah, Ooh. opening the floodgates. I, I like that, Cam, and it's quite, it's quite similar talking of how Proverbs has these themes and repeats and contradictions and 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 uh, various takes on different things. It's quite similar to something that we looked at in Proverbs 19. Um, well, it's something we... Yeah, where we, it talks about the fools. We may not have actually looked at it on the podcast. We mentioned it before we started. Um, was it in Proverbs 19? The A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offence. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's very much the same topic. You know, when you overlook an offence, you uh, you stop the dam from bursting. Yeah, I mean, both of those proverbs, Luke, are reminding me of the the wonderful insight you shared last episode about um, avoiding anger being a mm. reasonably good um, guiding principle for for interacting with people. Yeah, all all, all sorts of. Uh affirmation for, for me today in these yeah. these couple of 17 and 19 that we're looking at the but the verse i like the most in in 17 so far obviously aside from 22 uh the verse i like the second most in <laughs> proverbs 17 is 10 uh, a rebuke impresses the discerning person more than a hundred lashes of fool 
Mm. Now, the con- mm. the context of that makes it quite clear. It's the rebuke of the discerning person. So what mm. it means is when when somebody tells me that I've made a mistake, I learn from it mm. if I am a discerning person. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. And and that's a more educational experience than than getting a hundred lashes on your back. Yes, and it re- it reminds me very much of a fantastic quote, which I'm sure I've shared with you all before. Um, the one about the one about age and and um, status being uh, learning difficulties. Do you remember mm. that one? Mm, yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, I won't pull it out again now since I have <laughs> used it before. Um, as soon as you get too powerful to be questioned, yeah, you, it's, you should actually be really worried about your ability to learn things. Mm. Mm. Because people aren't going to be telling you the truth and you're not going to be listening to people who tell you things you don't want to hear because you're powerful and respected. Mm. And it's actually a huge danger to you. And I think, I think that... Uh, Proverbs. Proverbs is is well on board with that that particular concept. It, it, a lot of proverbs does read like advice to people of power and privilege about how to avoid the dangers and mistakes of being powerful and privileged. There's all this stuff in here about about magistrates and bribes and treating the poor. It's it it mm. is sort of advice to I, the privileged. I really like ways. what you're pointing out there. I like what you're pointing out there, Luke, because it's so easy for some of these verses about fools f- to be taken by people as as legitimizing the admonition of fools. Oh well, look, the Bible has something to say to you. You're a sluggard. You're sleeping in, or you're making bad decisions. You fool, or you're a disrespectful son. You know, shape up. Whereas I, I think you're right. I think that it's it's talking in that language, but it's actually addressing the people who think they're not the fool. So invariably, that's what Proverbs is doing. Mm. Sorry, on that note, Locke, uh, can I read an extended C.S. Lewis passage? You sure can. This, this speaks to whether... Um, Families bring rest, and it also speaks to this notion of, of, of trying to talk to the person who is not a fool. Um, <clears throat> and this is a short essay called The Sermon and the Lunch. It's only four pages. I won't read all four pages, but I'll, I'll read some excerpts because it's very good. <clears throat> and so, said the preacher, the home must be the foundation of our national life. It is there, all said and done, that character is formed. It is there that we appear as we really are. It is there we can fling aside the weary disguise of the outer world and be ourselves. It is there that we retreat from the noise and stress and temptation and dissipation of daily life to seek the source, sources of fresh strength and renewed purity. And as he spoke, I noticed that all the confidence in him, sorry, that all confidence in him had departed from every member of that congregation who was under 30. They'd been listening well up to this point. Now the shufflings and coughings began. Pews creaked, muscles relaxed. The sermon, for all practical purposes, was over. The five minutes for which the preacher continued talking were a total waste of time, at least for most of us. Whether it was a waste of time for me is for you to judge. I certainly did not hear any more of the sermon. I was thinking. 
And the, the starting point of my thought was the question, how can he? How can he, of all people? For I knew the preacher's home pretty well. In fact, I'd been lunching there that very day, making a fifth to the vicar and the vicar's wife and the son, who was in the RAF, and the daughter in the ATS, who happened both to be on leave. I could have avoided it, but the girl had whispered to me, for God's sake, stay to lunch if they ask you. It's always a little less frightful when there's a visitor. <laughs> lunch at the vicarage nearly always follows the same pattern. It starts with a desperate attempt on the part of the young people to keep up a bright patter of trivial conversation. Trivial, not because they are trivially minded, you can have real conversation with them if you get them alone, but because it would never occur to either of them to say at home anything that they were really thinking, unless it's forced out of them by anger. They are talking only to try and keep their parents quiet. They fail. The vicar, ruthlessly interrupting, cuts in on quite a different subject. He is telling us how to re-educate Germany. So this is written early post-war. Mm. He has never been there and seems to know nothing either of German history or the German language. But father begins the son and gets no further. His mother is now talking, and though nobody knows exactly when she began, uh, she is now in the middle of a complicated story about how badly some neighbour has treated her. Oh, Though it no. goes on a long time, we never learn how it began or ended. It's all middle. Mother, that's not quite fair, says the daughter at last. Mrs. Walker never said. But her father's voice booms in again. He's telling his son about the organisation of the RAF. So it goes on, until either the vicar or his wife say something so preposterous that the boy or the girl contradicts and insists on making the contradiction heard. The real minds of the young people have at last been called into action. They talk fiercely, quickly, contemptuously. They have facts and logic on their side. There is an answering flare-up from the parents. The father storms. The mother, oh blessed domestic queen's move, is hurt and plays pathos for all she is worth. The daughter becomes ironical. The father and son, elaborately ignoring each other, start talking to me. The lunch <laughs> party is in ruins. Uh, <clears throat> uh, he says, what worries me is not the fact that what the vicar is preaching is wrong. Um, just because he doesn't follow it, uh, you would a doctor who smokes may still advisedly, you know, well advisedly suggest you stop smoking. Uh, so it's not it's not the fact necessarily that he's not practicing what he preaches. What does worry me, says Lewis, is the fact that the vicar is not telling us at all what, that home life is difficult and has, like every form of life, its own proper temptations and corruptions. He keeps talking as if home was some panacea, a magical charm which of itself was bound to produce happiness and virtue. The trouble is not that he was insincere, but that he is a fool. He's not talking from his own experience of family life at all. He's automatically reproducing a sentimental tradition, and it happens to be a false tradition. Um, <clears throat> I won't recall all of it, but he says at one point, and it's worth reading the whole essay, it's probably available on, on, the, on the internet at some point, he says, <clears throat> of course, we must realise the yawning pitfall in the very character characteristic of home life which is so often glibly paraded as its principal attraction it is there that we appear as we really are it is there we can fling aside the disguises and be ourselves <laughs> these words in the vicar's mouth were only too true and he showed at the lunch table what they meant yeah. outside his own house he behaves with ordinary courtesy he would not have interrupted any other young man as he interrupted <clears throat> his son he would not in any other society have talked confident nonsense about subjects of which he was totally ignorant or if he had, he would have accepted correction with good temper. In fact, he values home as the place where he can be himself, in the sense of trampling on all the restraints which civilised humanity has found indispensable for tolerable social intercourse. And this, I think, is very common. 
What chiefly distinguishes domestic from public conversation is surely often simply its selfishness, slovenliness, incivility, even brutality. And it will often happen that those who praise home life most loudly are the worst offenders in this respect. They praise it. They are always glad to get home. They hate the outer world, can't stand visitors, can't be bothered meeting people, etc. Because the freedoms in which they indulge themselves at home have ended by making themselves unfit for civilised society. Mm. If they practised elsewhere the only behaviour they now find natural, they'd simply be knocked down. Yeah, that's a very, very well-made point, isn't it? Um. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, the family, the family is an institution capable of bringing rest and other good things. But, But we can't assume that anything in which humans are involved has a natural tendency to go right all the time, all by itself. Mm. Mm. I, I think it's a very good point, Kim, and and speaks very much to this theme of of nuance. You know, the family can be as the vicar described in his sermon, and that can be a good thing and a bad thing. And also, the family can be different to that. It it is. Mm. Existence is complicated, mm. and it cannot be explained by simple ideas. So, perhaps um, in closing, I'd like to share a little anecdote, a fun thing that I did uh, last weekend. I was invited to take a, a small Sabbath school discussion, and it was not uh, on the topic of the quarterly it was it was in uh, it was requested that it be closely tied to the topic of the sermon that was to follow which was on the theme of family in the gospel of luke and i thought to myself how can i sabbath schools discussions discuss best if there's just at least a little bit of provocation what provocation can i find in the gospel of luke on the theme of family and there is so starting in Luke 2, at the end of Luke 2, there's the story of Jesus, 12 years old. His, his family leave Jerusalem after going there to visit. Uh, um, and they begin the journey back. Um, they, his parents supposed him to be with the, the group. And they went a day's journey. And then they began looking for him and they couldn't find him. And, and we know the story, I think. They go back and they find him in the temple. And... We know the famous bit where Jesus says, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Well, those are nice sentiments from the mouth of Jesus. But look at what Jesus's mother says just before that. They were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. She feels mistreated. She feels mistreated by Jesus, which is there's the first provocation. The interesting thing is the way this is followed up in verse in chapter 9 of Luke where Jesus is is challenging people to to follow him and um then one of them said oh lord i i will come and follow you but permit me first to go and bury my father and Jesus says well let the dead bury their own dead but as for you come and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of god and another one said i will also follow you lord but f- first permit me to say goodbye to my family But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus in both of these stories seems to have an obvious disregard 
for the value of family and family ties. And th that was my prov provocative thought. So I'd like to, given we've been talking about families, I'd like to perhaps leave that one. Um, you might have some interesting response, or maybe we leave it to the listeners to to correct my, my wayward provocations. Well, there's other passages, aren't there? When, it, when, his, when his mother and brothers are waiting outside. And he says, oh, my mother and brothers, well, anyone's my mother and brother, if they listen yeah. to what I say. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, there, there are plenty of times when Jesus comes to the defense of children, uh, but my provocation was he seems to have a somewhat of a disregard for the norms of family ties and responsibilities. Now, uh, obviously, we're talking about a fairly unique experience in the person of, of, of Jesus. So um, I'm happy to be corrected quietly i will take what was that verse you had luke um i will take the rebuke and i will attempt to be a person of understanding uh we've we've jumped around a little bit um perhaps uh one concluding uh one, one potential summary of our discussion is that uh just as we are called to bring about god's kingdom in the world at large um, the different fields of our life each have their own appropriate modes of expression of the Christian life and we are not to treat you know, people in our immediate family circle the same way we'd treat a stranger on the street if we were doing street evangelism necessarily but, but, but the family is a sphere in which God is calling us to work um, and, and we are just as inclined as fallen creatures to bring strife there as anywhere else. It's not something automatically safe. It's not something automatically good. It's something with huge potential for good or ill. I'm only laughing. You can use this at your discretion. Um, uh, we're capable of causing strife. Indeed, there's the text. I think Paul speaks about, uh, you know, fathers don't frustrate your children. Um uh, children obey your fathers, and fathers do not frustrate your children. Um, um, and and we were going through some. We keep a little note of of funny things that the children have said. We've got a little book, um, and sometimes we reflect on it. And I went through some the other day, and my eldest son once said about me, apparently, um, I hope with only sporadic justification, he hasn't got a short fuse. He's detonate on impact. <laughs> yeah, well, I um, I do apologise to my kids today, um, because they'd purchased while at the shopping centre. They'd been allowed to choose one thing, and they'd chosen these flavoured yogurts, pouch things, and they've been sitting in the fridge. And the amount of um airtime those yogurt packets have received in our family over the course of the last week is phenomenal uh, knowing that they were not allowed to have it until friday night <laughs> you know that the the fact that they were not meant to have them just meant they came up in conversation all the time <laughs> and then of course then of course when it came to be divvied out they weren't all the same flavor and there was disagreement about about who had selected which flavor while they were at the shops and then 
And then one of the kids dropped the packet of yogurt that he had and it was all over the floor. And I told them all that we were never buying those yogurts ever again. <laughs> and it it produced um, some, you know, attempts at, at, you know, to contain it all. But there was obvious, fairly serious trauma imparted by that statement. <laughs> and I had to walk it back. So um, I'll, make a, I'll make a point of buying those yogurts again. Um, just to show that my apology has weight to it, but yes. Just when you um, do, let them eat them straight away upon receiving them and don't let them sit in the fridge. That, no, I just, that. Won't t- I just won't tell them. I just won't tell them that I'm buying them and they will appear you know, on a subsequent Friday night. Well, the opportunity mm. to apologise is an important one to take, I think, for a father. I had many opportunities because I had many children to apologize many times. In fact, I got to the point where I, where I, where I would say to Wendy, why is it that I'm always the one who has to apologize? And of course, I could answer that question without her giving me the answer because it was, I was always the one who was making the mistakes. So the, the solution here, gentlemen, is to uh, to teach your families that it is it is a glory to overlook an offence, mm. mm. <laughs> and you're just giving no, them the but, opportunity to have some glory. But the the flip side to that is that um, apologising is something very hard, and it's even harder if it's not modelled mm. to you. Mm. Mm. Um, so hopefully. There's it is, an, and one of a... one of the things I've I've noticed, Cam, just in my short experience as a parent, is that from a very young age, humans are very observant of behaviours, and yeah. they will do as you do, not as you say. Mm. Yeah. So if 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 you're not modelling the behaviour that you want them to to do. You Absolutely. can drive yourself insane trying to, to tell them what to yeah. do and teach them what to do. They are watching you and they're watching how you react. And if you want your children to apologize, you have to apologize to them. You have to apologize to other people in front of them. They have to see it. Otherwise, it won't happen. So, exactly. Exactly. Um uh, that was driven. That point was driven home very strongly, Luke. When at the age of two, and at this time, Mel and I were both trying to complete postgraduate degrees while we were moving house and um, various other stresses, and we were legitimately fairly stressed uh, without full-time jobs and both studying and with two kids and um, another one on the way. Um, but uh, about this time, uh, when I asked Tanner to do something really trivial, like I don't know, can you play in your bedroom or something? Oh, no, Daddy, I can't do that. I'm too stressed. <laughs> so, and as the words came out of his mouth, I could hear I could hear where he'd picked it up from. I knew exactly where he'd picked it up from. The, the other thing I will say, though, about apologising to kids is that, uh, mine at least, young kids are so gracious, mm. Mm. so desperate to forgive. Uh, you've done something and it's hurt them and you, you, they're upset and you say to them, look, Daddy, Daddy, I'm really sorry what I did was the wrong thing and they tear up straight away and they give you a big hug. Um, they're, they're just very relieved to have it resolved. So, um, you know, 
it just shows I find it much more easy the importance of relationship to have right relationship yeah. is the human desire yeah they really really want it <clears throat> well we're going to leave it there um and that was a really interesting discussion let's um throw it back to our listeners as always they can email us at subschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we enjoy hearing any of your thoughts we're sorry if you were desperate to find out what the story of joseph had to say about rest uh, but we'll have to point you elsewhere for that and we do hope you'll join us for our discussion next week <laughs>